Good morning. Fellowship Bible Church, how we doing? I will attempt to be your coffee this morning. I'm gonna try to have some energy for you. Hey, good news is we have real coffee back there. Amen on that? Are we allowed to say amen to that? Yeah, we can, we, amen. Well, we'll say amen to God's word too, so it's gonna be a good Sunday. Coffee and Jesus. Hey, here's what's going on this morning. Um, I want to, one, welcome you. If you're brand new, this is your first time coming to our church, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. If this is like the 3,000th time you've been to our church, I did the math, that means you're about 60-ish years old, and you have stellar, stellar church attendance. So good job. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. If you have never put yourself on the radar to get connected, we wanna help. We wanna make the large church feel smaller and more personal, and this is how we do that. If you would please, either the QR code, text I'm new, or go to our website, or you can just walk in the back, meet someone in the lobby in the main center booth. We wanna get to know you. So tonight, this morning, this morning could be the time where you say, I wanna be on the radar. I wanna get connected. We'd love to connect you with all that we have here. Um, I've got two announcements, and these announcements, I just wanna remind us that when you look at announcements, if you're not in this category, it's very easy just to check out. I check out on announcements when I'm not a part of that announcement, but I'm gonna invite you to do two things. You with me? As I share these announcements, I want you to do number one, commit to pray. Whatever this announcement is and what this, who this person is for, pray that God would use it to do something amazing. Are y'all with me on that? Number two, not only will we be a praying church, but number two, let's invite anyone that we know to participate who fits these categories. And what I mean by that is, if it's you, then you just come and that's easy. You be a part of it. Register, be in. But if it's not you, I want you to think bigger. Who can I invite? Is it my kid, my son or daughter? Is it my neighbor? Is it a coworker that I work with? We will pray over these announcements and we will invite. Everybody with me? Big buildup for announcements, are you ready? Okay, first announcement. I get to lead the charge for helping the future of young marriage, newly marrieds. Merge, it is an eight-week premarital counseling experience. If you are, you're newly engaged or you're seriously dating and you want to be a part of this, we will help prepare you for marriage. Eight weeks long, and you can sign up right now, it's live, please. July 11th will be our summer series. We also offer it in the fall, and we do another one in the spring. Please do this. Pray over the new marriages at Fellowship Bible Church. Also, who will you invite to participate? I'm very excited about this next announcement. We are taking our young professional community groups that we have all over Northwest Arkansas. We're inviting them all together for a young professional worship night, which is tonight. If you fit into that category, just come tonight, 6.30 to 8.30 at the Student Center West. If you do not fit into that category, please pray that tonight, had someone laugh, <laughs> pray that tonight it would be an awesome night where God does amazing things with the young professionals of Northwest Arkansas. Are y'all with me on praying for tonight? Yes? Invite anyone, think big, 
Who do you want to invite to participate? Who will it be that you invite tonight for Young Professional Worship Night? All right, on that note, I've said a lot about inviting and I've said a lot about praying. How about we just pause and pray for this morning? Let's do that. God, please remind us that you have been faithful, that you are currently faithful, that you will continue to be faithful. God, whatever the obstacle is in the way of us believing this truth, I pray that you would help us to release that this morning. Remind us of your faithfulness. God, I pray that your will would be done in our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing this love song together. Our Father, Creator, you hold our hearts together. There's no one higher than you. Redeemer, Defender, our great and mighty Savior, there's no one higher than you. You know, we gather as a family to sing songs like this to Jesus. What an incredible opportunity to remember who he is and what he's done. You know, Colossians 3.16 says, let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. You know, as a worship team, we're very purposeful to choose songs that point to the richness of Christ's message. And so when we sing to Jesus, there's no one higher than you. Let's drink in the words of Colossians 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Aren't you thankful? Christ is also the head of the church, this church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And that is good news for us this morning, amen. So with thankful hearts, let's sing this again. You are always with us, gracious to forgive us. Stand amazed. 
together. Majestic in wonder, you reign with love forever. There's no one higher than you. Your beauty, your splendor, your glory knows no measure. There's no
You may be seated. And God's word teaches us that we are all in need of a champion, a champion strong enough, perfect enough, and caring enough to break the bondage that sin has over our lives. And that's exactly what our King Jesus has done, our forever King. For all that have believed on his name, he made it possible for us to be washed clean from the stain and the devastation of sin. Isn't that good news? This morning, do you long to be washed clean? You know, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, singing songs and singing phrases like my forever king, we have an opportunity to draw a powerful line in the sand, declaring unashamedly that Jesus, I trust you with my past. I trust you with my present and my forever. My heart belongs only to you, my forever king, and I put my life fully into your hands. You, the one that Luke 12, 7 knows how many hairs are on my head, which is pretty impressive because for some of us, that's a moving target. The one that 1 Peter 5, 7 says truly cares for us. The one that in Psalm 86, 5 says is good, ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon his name. That's the Jesus we have the chance to worship this morning. And so King Jesus, we say, you are the king of our hearts. They're forever only yours.
you have that hobby that you spend embarrassingly too much time on? Like the one that, like, if people really knew the amount of time you spend on the internet browsing and looking at this thing, you'd be, you would just kind of hang your head just a little bit. I have a friend who's really into running. That sentence strikes me odd, like, to begin with. And, I mean, he's like one of those, like, ultra marathon, 100-mile run kind of guys. And he gets a magazine every month delivered to his house called Runner's World. Now, like, humans have been running a while. Are there really new developments in running? But apparently, they have something to write about every month on the topic of running. Now, I'm no better because my, like, obsessive hobby and interest is musical gear and guitar gear. And so I get my little gear magazine every three months, and I devour it. And I look at every new pedal, every new piece of gear. And the funny thing about guitar gear is, like, all of our new technology in guitar gear is just trying to recreate a sound that happened back in the 70s. Like, they're going, it's amazing. We can now recreate this thing that somebody created 50 years ago. And we're really proud of it. Okay, and so I will devour these guitar gear magazines and just nerd out. I will sit there and just browse guitars all day that I'm not going to buy just because I think it's fun. Okay, here's what we're going to ask us to do this morning. Can we just nerd out on the Bible for a minute? Like this morning's sermon is not going to have a practical walk away. There's, there's no like here are the three steps of how you're going to live differently I'm going to ask us just to be really impressed with God and his word this morning. Dorothy Sayers was a, uh, a writer and a thinker and a scholar uh, in England in the mid-20th century. And she was also a faithful follower of Jesus. And she was talking about the state of the church of, the Eng of England in the mid-20th century. And she was responding to the claim that the church was shrinking because they talked too much about doctrine and theology. And he said, she said, I think it is quite the opposite. Now get ready for some good British sass here. Um, this is what she said in her essay. She said, Christ, in his divine innocence, said to the woman of Samaria, you worship what you do not know, being apparently under the impression that it might be desirable on the whole to know what one was worshiping. He thus showed himself sadly out of touch with the 20th century mind. For the cry today is, away with the tedious complexities of dogma, let us have the simple spirit of worship. Just worship, no matter what. The only drawback to this demand for a generalized and undirected worship is the practical difficulty of arousing any sort of enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. Our goal this morning is to gain a little better knowledge of who exactly it is we worship in the hopes that it will make that worship more sincere, more rich, and more enthusiastic. So are you ready to nerd out on the Bible? Let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, we love you. And our desire this morning is that as we read your word, um, that you will give us a bigger picture of who you are, a bigger picture of what you, done, you have done and exactly who Jesus is so that we can worship you more fully and more truly. We love you and we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14? That's what we're going to pick up in our study of Hebrews. And at this point, the author of the Hebrews, 
He introduces a new concept in his defense of the Christian faith. Remember, one of the issues at this time that he seems to be addressing in Hebrews is that perhaps the, the, the followers of Jesus that he's writing to are tempted to back off from their Christian faith, maybe return to Judaism. Maybe there's, there's definitely pressure on them, and the Christian faith has lost some of the excitement that it once had, and there's temptation to fall away. And so he's trying to convince them that Jesus is enough, that this faith is enough, and that they shouldn't drift away from it. And he picks up in verse 14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven. So already we have to hit pause because the author is bringing up a concept that he expects his audience to immediately connect with and immediately to have a whole range of feelings, thoughts, and passions associated with that may mean nothing to us. And it's the concept of a priest. Now, in American society in the 21st century, the idea of priest is a very obscure, marginalized issue. Um, it, it, is, it is not at the center of our society to have priests. Um, when we went to my, my daughter's elementary school, you know how they have the, like, what do you want to be when you grow up day? And they had a bulletin board where everybody put their desired professions on the board. Do you know what no one picked? Priest. No one, when you do your little like drawings of like, you know, all the little cartoon characters, professions you can do, you can be a business person or you can be a police officer, or a teacher, or a doctor. Look, no one has priests. Now, just as a side note, do you know what the number one choice among elementary schools in Rogers was that, that year that we went? Get ready for it. YouTuber. <laughs> just let the gravity of that sink in for the future of our culture. Okay, we're done with that. So, the priest is not a part of our everyday culture, but it was central to culture in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, every town, every group of people had to have priests. Why? Because there were no atheists back then. No matter what culture you're from, you believe in the spiritual, and you believe in the idea that there is some higher power, a god or gods, that is sovereign over the world, and you need to be on good terms with those gods for life to work. Everyone held that. They also understood, this was just a, an assumption of life, that everyday people, they can't get to God. They, they, there's no, they, they don't know how to approach him. And so they needed a professional class of people who knew how to do it. These were the priests. These were the people who were trained and dedicated their lives to knowing what God expected and how you could intercede for people to God. So you needed to have these people. To, to have a, a priest would be similar to, if you, we, we've seen the scenario play out in real life and in movies so many times when there's a terrible accident and somebody's in a severe condition and you hear the words that you're waiting to hear, hi, I'm a doctor, I can help. What those words mean is we have a desperate need and someone is on the scene who is qualified to help. The priest was the person in society that was the central part of every culture that knew how to help people connect with God. They knew what God expected. And in the Jewish culture, they had a group of people that God had designated to serve as priests. They were the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. These were the priests of the day. And so, for Christians at this time, they were in a very unique situation. In fact, one commentator says one of the biggest 
obstacles to Christian faith at this time, perhaps one of the biggest questions they had to answer from outsiders was, well, where's your priest? You have no priests. Where's your professional class? Where's your temple? You must not have access to God. Now, you can imagine if you had been raised to think this way, that you needed a professional priest to intercede to God for you, and suddenly you've left that behind and you're now a part of a church that has no priests, you might think you're missing something. And so the author of the Hebrews is addressing this concern, where is our priest? And his answer is this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, this is going to be his central thesis. We do have a priest. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the priest for all of us. And he has a very special kind of priesthood. Look at what he says about Jesus as priest. First of all, he approached God. That was one of the jobs of the priest. They had to be able to go to the temple to approach God. But Jesus approached God in a way no priest ever has. We have a great high priest who ascended into heaven. You see, every other priest, what they would do in the ancient world is they would create a temple. And that the temples were supposed to be like a model of God's throne. And so the idea was, as the priest went into the temple, he was symbolically approaching God's throne on earth. The author of the Hebrews says, no, no, no. Jesus didn't enter a symbolic throne room. Jesus actually entered the throne room of God. He went there. No priest has ever done that before. This is a different kind of priesthood. This is significantly better than any kind of priest anyone's ever seen. He ascended into heaven. Because we have that kind of high priest, let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. What else does Jesus do? Well, verse 15 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. You see, Jesus has ascended to the heights of the throne room of God, but he's also been through the difficulties we've been through, so he knows what it's like to be us. Jesus knows what it's like to get the flu. Jesus knows what it's like to work a really hard day and crawl into bed with every bone in his body aching. Jesus knows what it's like to have conflict, to be emotionally hurt over somebody betraying him. Jesus knows what it's like to face the temptations and the difficulties of human life. So our high priest who can enter the throne room of God also gets what it's like to be us. That's really important. If we are asking him to represent us to God, we want someone who understands, right? I mean, think about the idea of representatives. When we send a representative to D.C., we want someone who feels like they're from among us. They get what it's like to be us. And they say, Jesus gets what it's like to be you. He can empathize. He can feel with you what you're going through. But that led to something. The radical uniqueness of Jesus led to a different kind of representation. Look at verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, that, that's not part of the normal arrangement. Let us approach the throne. That's not how priesthood works. You see, every other kind of priesthood, the way it would work is you would come to the temple, 
you would go to the priest and you would say, hey, here's my, my offering, here's my sacrifice, here's my prayer, go do worship for me. I will stay outside and pray. Only the priests actually got to enter. But the author of the Hebrews says, hey, because of Jesus, he goes into the throne room of God and then looks back and says, hey, come on in. You can come too. Because Jesus is priest, he invites us in to that new kind of relationship, direct access to God. So these are the powerful things that Jesus does because he's priest. But did you notice one small, little, yet very significant statement sandwiched in there after it talked about Jesus' temptation? He was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. Now, this is gonna, another thing that's going to make Jesus unlike any other human priest. Jesus never once, though he lived life on earth, though he went through all the difficulties and struggles of humanity, he never gave in to sin. Now, some would raise the question, how can he really have experienced temptation if he never sinned? There's a couple things we need to talk about here. First of all, temptation and sin are different. You can feel the pull of temptation without ever giving in to it. And that's a really freeing and powerful thing. To know just to feel tempted does not mean you have sinned or dishonored God. It's your response to that temptation that defines your faithfulness. Jesus felt the temptation, but he never gave in. And then if we object that somehow that makes his temptation any less, consider it, let's go back to a running metaphor for my friend. Let's consider there's some insanely hard 100-mile race that several people enter, but only one finishes. Who among all those runners knows the fullness of how hard that race was? Only the one who finished. You see, every time we give in to temptation, we end the temptation. We cut it short. We throw in the towel. So the only person who knows the full weight of temptation is the one who has endured an entire life of temptation without giving in. So Jesus actually knows the weight of temptation in a way that none of us ever will because he has resisted it for his entire life. But beyond that, you might think, but Jesus doesn't know what it's like to feel the guilt and the shame that I feel when I've sinned. So maybe Jesus can't really relate to me there. But now let's check that for a minute. Think about all of the consequences of sin that make it so terrible. What does sin lead to? Shame broken relationships, physical harm, a weight of guilt and public disapproval? Has Jesus experienced the negative consequences of sin? Every single one of them. He experienced the shame of being strung up naked on a cross. He experienced the accusation and the guilt publicly. He experienced the the broken relationship and the shattered friendships of the relationships around him as people abandoned him. Here's the irony. Jesus got every negative experience of sin without actually having committed the sin. So not only can he understand the temptation, he can also understand all of the pain we feel because of sin, even though he never sinned. So because of this unique relationship, this unique life that Jesus lived, he understands perfectly what it is like to be us, and yet can still ascend directly to the throne of God. This is the priest that Christians have. 
Now, verses 14 to 16 serve as, as kind of a thesis statement for the next several chapters of Hebrews. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking what it means to have Jesus as high priest. Today, we're going to overview that a little bit. And then over the next three weeks, we're going to look at what it means for Jesus as a high priest to bring a new covenant, a new arrangement or relationship between God and people. Then we're going to explore what it looks like for Jesus as a new priest to bring a better sacrifice than any of the sacrifices previously offered. And then finally, we'll talk about how Jesus as a new high priest brings greater access to God. So we're going to get to all the practical implications of the priesthood of Jesus over the next few weeks. But today, we have a very particular issue to deal with, and that is Jesus's qualification to be a priest. You see, the moment the author makes the claim, Jesus is our high priest, anyone who knew their Jewish Bibles well would have said, wait a minute, there's a problem. Jesus doesn't meet the qualifications to be a priest. Now, that might seem like an obscure problem to us. I mean, can't God just name whoever his priest he wants to be? But think about systems where qualifications really matter, where credentials really matter. One that comes to mind immediately is sports. What happens if you play a season with an ineligible player? The entire season can be invalidated, right? I mean, we all remember the Mighty Ducks when we found out that Banks was not a hawk, he was a duck. And the Hawks had a choice to make. Will they invalidate their entire season to keep this one kid? The point is, the credentials matter. And to play with an ineligible player could invalidate everything. The stakes are so much higher in the priesthood. We saw this throughout the Old Testament. Anytime somebody tried to act as priest who didn't have the right to be, there were serious consequences. And so now the author of the Hebrews says, Jesus is our high priest, but we've already said high priests had to descend from Aaron. And everyone knows Jesus isn't a descendant of Aaron. Everyone at that time would have known he was a descendant of David and Judah. He's the wrong family to be a priest. So what are Jesus's credentials? How can he claim to be a priest? If we have this system that God gave, you're now telling me we do have a priest because it's Jesus. How does that work? That's what the author is going to defend in chapter 5. He also discusses it in 7. We don't have time to look at 7 today, so we're going to anchor in in 5. So in 5 verse 1, he says, Every high priest is selected from among the people. First qualification, they have to be called out from among the people, one of the people, and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So they are appointed from among the people in order to represent the people. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. But notice the caveat in three. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. For a priest to be qualified because of his own sin, he's also going to have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. So the qualifications for priests, called by God, like Aaron was, from among the people to represent the people, but he had to deal with his own sins first. So the author of Hebrews is going to say, in the same way, verse 5, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. 
Christ didn't assume this. That was the problem in the Old Testament is people tried to grab the role of high priest when it wasn't theirs. But they're gonna say God actually called Christ to be this and he, the author, to be able to make this work, he has to be able to defend it from the Old Testament. So he gives us two quotes. You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Are you so excited now? That clear everything up? Hey, let's talk about these two quotes that the author of the Hebrews brings in. The first one comes from Psalm chapter two, and it might immediately strike us as odd because it says, you are my son today, I have become your father. That might give the impression that Jesus wasn't eternally God's son and only became God's son at a certain point. In fact, that was an ancient heresy. But we know that's not true because everywhere in the New Testament where this is discussed, we're told that Jesus is the son of God since before the creation of the world. John 1, Hebrews 1, points to this eternal divinity of Jesus. We need to understand what's going on in Psalm 2. And this psalm was written by David and it had a very specific role. It was a psalm for when a new king was crowned. And God made a promise to David. He said, for your sons who are king, I will be to them a father and I will treat them like my son. So when the king was crowned, this, would be, this psalm, Psalm 2, would be read over them, and it would be God saying to the new king, you're my son, and today I've become your father. This language is not eternal father-son relationship. This language is king language. So what is the author meaning when he quotes Psalm 2 about Jesus? He's acknowledging what they already knew, that he's a son of David who has the right to be king just like all the other kings of David. Now, he's gonna be a son of God in a way none of them were, but that's the point of the Psalm 2 quote. Jesus is the king. That would have been uncontroversial for people who are following Jesus. They understood that. He descended from David. He had the right to be king. He's Messiah. But then he quotes Psalm 110 that says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's an obscure, strange reference. In fact, this person, Melchizedek, is only named two times in the entire Old Testament. We're going to have to move forward a little bit to understand what is the author doing by naming Melchizedek. In verse 7, he continues to prove how Jesus is qualified to be a priest. He says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Okay, what he's doing is he is proving that Jesus is in fact one who came from among us and is able to empathize with us. So he talks about Jesus having to pray in desperation to God and then learning obedience and becoming perfect. What does that mean? How can the eternal God be made perfect? Wasn't he already perfect? We're concerned here with him being made a perfect priest. And as a priest, he had to learn what it was to live a human life and obey. Not in the sense that he didn't know about it, but there's an experiential kind of learning. For Jesus to make the claim, I know what it is to be human. I know what it is to live a human life. He actually had to go live one. So the author's point is, Jesus became a perfectly qualified priest when he lived a human life and depended on God as a person, as a human. 
So he's defending that part, and then he comes back to this issue of Melchizedek in verse 10. He says, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is this order of Melchizedek, and why does it give Jesus credentials to be a priest? You ready to go on a journey? All the way back to Genesis chapter 14 is where we meet this odd person, Melchizedek. What's happening is Abraham, who is the father of the faith, the father of Israel, he has just gone and rescued his nephew Lot from a bunch of raiders that came in and raided the camp. And he's come back victorious with loot and wealth and riches. And as he's on his way back, this mysterious figure shows up out of nowhere. We read... Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Who is this Melchizedek? We get no context, no other reference to him. As far as we know, as we're reading Genesis, Abraham seems to be the only person on earth who has a relationship with God. But we find out there is this man Melchizedek who is king of Salem that is probably Jerusalem before Israel occupied it. And this king Melchizedek is also the priest for his area to the one true God. And Abram recognized him as priest and let Melchizedek intercede to God for him. Now, Abraham's kind of a big deal in the story of the Old Testament, okay? It's hard to get much higher than Abraham. You've got Abraham, you've got Moses, and you've got David. Those are pretty much your big guys, right? And so here is someone that Abraham actually recognized had the right to, to operate as a priest for him. And that's it. Story moves on. We go a couple hundred years later to Moses and we get an entire system of priests set up as descendants of Aaron. Melchizedek drifts into obscurity not to be looked at again until a few hundred years later. And then King David is writing his psalms and reflecting on his faith in the Lord. Now it's important to understand what it was like for David to be king of Israel. You see, David's predecessor, Saul, had lost his kingship because of an egregious sin, which is he tried to blend the throne and the priesthood. He tried to be a king who offered sacrifices, and God said, no, you cannot do that. Keep them separate. A king can't be a priest. That was well established. But David, as king in Deuteronomy, it describes the role of king one of his responsibilities, his first responsibility as king, is to hand write his own copy of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Can you imagine? Handwriting. This is the stuff that rabbis and scribes were supposed to do. So the idea is the king of Israel was supposed to be an expert in the Bible. You know, we talk about presidents having their first hundred days and what all they can accomplish. The first hundred days for a king of Israel was Bible study. He was supposed to hand copy the books of Moses and become an expert in them so that they would guide him his entire reign. So David would have been studying in detail Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And David 
sits down one day to write a psalm that becomes Psalm 110. And it's a psalm about a future king, a coming Messiah. And this is what David wrote about that Messiah. He said, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, we have two different Hebrew words there represented by the all caps Lord and the singular caps Lord. The all caps is Yahweh, God. The other one simply means my master. So David says, Yahweh is speaking to my master. David is envisioning someone whom Yahweh is going to make king, who even deserves to be master of David. And what does Yahweh say to him? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so he's writing this psalm about a coming king that will be greater than David. And you know what he says at the end of this psalm when discussing this coming king? Look at further down in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. David, reading Genesis, recognized that there was a king who ruled in Jerusalem who was also a priest, and his origins came before Moses and Aaron. And so being guided by the Holy Spirit, David foretold that the coming king would be qualified to be priest because God set a kind of credential in this obscure Old Testament passage. All the other credentials focus on being a son of Aaron, but God set this one method of credentialing for a king to be a king priest after the order of Melchizedek. And David said, that's what our Messiah is going to do. One little obscure reference in Genesis 14. One little obscure reference in Psalm 110. I love a novel where they bury really great details early that come back to pull everything together at the end. Now check this out. A thousand years later, Jesus comes onto the scene and he's in a theological debate with the Pharisees and they're challenging his authority. They're lobbing theological questions at him. He's knocking them all down. He's doing great. And then he says, hey, I've got a theological question for you. So Jesus has an opportunity to bring up one big theological issue, and what passage does he choose? Psalm 110. This is what Jesus said in Luke 20. He said, Jesus said to them, why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Jesus is saying the Messiah has to be more than just a descendant of David. He has to be something bigger, something higher than David. So in this moment in Luke 20, Jesus is saying, hey guys, Psalm 110, that king after the line of David who's actually bigger and greater than David, that's me. Follow the chain. Genesis 14, a credential is set up in an obscure reference to a king who deserves to also be a priest. Psalm 110, David, reflecting on his descendants and a coming Messiah, recognizes that Messiah will be a priest like Melchizedek. Jesus shows up and says, hey, guess what? Psalm 110, it's about me. And now the author to the Hebrews is reflecting on the question, where is our priest? You could see it laid out from beginning to end, 
from Melchizedek to David to Jesus and then to the church. This beautiful story that the sovereign God has woven since the beginning to provide exactly what we need in our Savior. And because of this, Jesus has the right to be both our king and our priest. So how do we respond? I think the first response is we have to worship. If we have such a great high priest, let's cling to him. Let's honor him and let's be amazed at what God has done in his sovereign plan since the beginning of the world to provide for us a king who has the right to rule and govern and direct us and a high priest who understands where we are and can lead us to God. Lord, we love you and we are in awe of you. We're in awe of Jesus. The one whom all of these breadcrumbs point to the one to whom the entire story has been leading this entire time. From the calling of Abraham, from some obscure priest king in Salem 4,000 years ago, to a king writing a worship psalm in Jerusalem, to our priest king telling the world that he's it. Lord, you're worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our loyalty. We want to worship you now. It's in the name of Jesus, our King and Priest, we pray. Amen. Be
So because we have a great high priest who has entered into the throne room of God and made a perfect and lasting sacrifice, we, we no longer come and make sacrifices. We no longer come to the altar to offer sacrifices again and again. Instead, we remember the sacrifice that was made by our great high priest. We remember his body that was broken for us. And so we eat. Remember, the blood that was shed for us to cleanse us for sins, not the blood of a lamb or a bull, but the lamb of our priest himself. We remember and we drink. And then to honor our great high priest, we sing. to make this our prayer this morning before we leave this place that Christ would be magnified in our lives. We join with creation and sing. Were creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry then from north to south and east to west we hear Christ 
in our lives. 
God, would we look to you as we leave this place as our high priest, walking by the power of your spirit within us. Teach us to trust and to obey you. For you alone are God and you alone are worthy. We love you. We offer our lives to you in worship. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning, Fellowship. If you'd like prayer this morning, the Thompsons are in the prayer room. Go in the peace and love of Christ this week.